chapter 2 again, and we want to continue looking at this passage and thinking about uh, Christmas in light of the passage, but this is sort of a, a, a message that will wrap up our our look at Christmas and move us toward looking at the new year as well, so it's sort of a cr- transition type of focus this morning as we'll look back and look forward at the same time in light of the sovereign goodness of God. And there's probably no better thing to be reminded of uh, at the end of the year and at the beginning of a new year than the sovereignty of God over everything. And so let me read for us, beginning in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, and just remind you of what these verses say. Uh, Peter's preaching, he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and the people have heard his message and now they're responding to it out of the conviction of their hearts. And it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. We've been talking about Christmas in light of this passage, in light of the fact that Paul says in Second Corinthians, he says, Thanks be to God. Uh, for his indescribable gift. And the question might be, why is, what is that gift? And the gift is the incarnation, is the coming of God uh, into the world by taking on human nature, human flesh, and the person of Jesus. It's, that's the gift to the world. And the question is, why is it so indescribable? In other words, not only is the idea of God becoming man something that's indescribable. But the reason why he became man is indescribable. And yet we still need to think a little bit about, well, why did he even do such an amazing thing? And we talked about the fact that it was for the kinds of things that uh, Peter talks about here, the forgiveness of sins, that he came to make a way for us to be free from and forgiven of our inexcusable sins. He also came that we might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Peter says in verse 38, which was the idea of him coming to meet our need for impossible situations. Like what? Like living well in the face of a pandemic or living well in the face of um, serious loss or living well uh, just day in and day out with the normal pressures and tensions and difficulties of life. And by living well, I mean, as God would define well, trusting God as we should and and loving people like he does. And the reality is those things are impossible for us to do apart from the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus came that we might be given the gift of the Holy Spirit and He came that we might receive the promise, as Peter says in verse 39. And that ultimately that promise, uh, well, it begins with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a down payment on eternal life. And therefore the promise ultimately points to the fact that 
Jesus came that we might have have an answer to our inconsolable souls. An inconsolable soul is a soul that can't find full joy, happiness, and satisfaction. And so Jesus came to deal with our sin problem, came to deal with our, our love problem, he came to deal with our happiness problem. And so everything we need and desire is found in the gift of Jesus. And yet the reality is not everybody receives him. And so the question that I want to deal with today is, why does anybody receive him? It's a huge question. Well, C.S. Lewis, I mentioned him last week in various ways. And I I just want to remind you, if you haven't heard, or maybe if you have heard, about how he came to Christ. C.S. Lewis... um, Grew up with some religious background, but early on he basically turned his back on that, um, was an atheist, up until he was 33 years old. He was a professor at Oxford, very intelligent man, and had no desire to become a Christian or to be religious. In fact, at one point he said, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them, and from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. So there was a point in his life as an atheist, he looked at all world religions and said, you know, I don't want anything to do with them, and especially Christianity, I don't want anything to do with that because it's the worst of the bunch. And yet something happened to C.S. Lewis. He went from that position to a very, very different position, and he talks about it uh, in his uh, book that talks about his conversion, and he entitled that book, Surprised by joy, surprised by joy, how? By God in Jesus. And he says this, he's talking about being at a room uh, at a college in um, England. He says, you must pitch me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, capital H, God, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He called himself a reluctant convert, meaning he had no desire to be converted. He wasn't looking for God. He didn't think there was a God to look for. And yet God relentlessly pursued him is the way he characterizes it. But if you read uh, more about his testimony, he wasn't a Christian at that point. He He went from being an atheist to a theist. He went from not believing in God to saying, okay, there is a God and I know I, I have to deal with him. But it wasn't until two years later before he actually became a Christian and believed in the Christian God. And it was through men like Tolkien that he had a close relationship with and others that he had long conversations with. And then one day, he and his brother were riding this motorcycle with a sidecar and they were going to the zoo. And this is what he said about that. When we set out, I did not believe going to the zoo, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. So they get in the, on the motorcycle in the sidecar and they're headed off to the zoo. And he says, at that point, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But when we reached the zoo, I did. 
So by the time he got to the zoo, he was a believer in Christ. He said, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless on the bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. From death to life, from darkness to light, the fog had lifted and the sun, S-O-N, was now shining bright. It's an amazing testimony of God's gracious work in a person's heart. But we, we would be misunderstanding that testimony if we thought it was simply his testimony. It's everyone's testimony who is a believer in Jesus. Now, it may have transpired differently for each of us. We not, may not have experienced it in the way that he did, but the fundamentals of how it happened are all the same. It's the sovereign work of God in our lives. And that's why he could go on to say, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. He said, you better be careful what you read because God might just put a Bible in front of you or a good book in front of you and just explode that truth into your heart. And then he goes on to say, but who can duly adore or who can properly worship that love, capital L meaning God, which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. His compulsion, his heart to save, is what sets us free. And so it's a great, great, wonderful testimony to the very uh, central point that I want us to see this morning in light of the Christmas story. If you note in verse 39, Peter says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. there's, There's a sense in which the gospel is for everyone. But there's also the reality that no one will receive that gospel unless God calls them out of their deadness and out of that darkness. It takes the sovereign work of God. And that's why we're talking about the inscrutable gift. The idea of being inscrutable is the idea of not being able to explain. Another way to picture it is it's something that's unfathomable. It's like if you dove into a pool and tried to reach the bottom and you could never reach the bottom. It's unfathomable that not only the gift of God in the form of a real person that you can touch is an unfathomable thing, but also how people come to believe in the gospel is an unfathomable thing. It's, it's something that's beyond our full understanding so that we can say the indescribable gift is received through inscrutable sovereignty. And that's why it says in Romans 11.33 in the ESV version, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In the NASB it says, um, unfathomable his ways. In Ephesians 3.8 it talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so it's, um, it's a sovereignty and it's a richness in Christ that is something you can never find the bottom to. You can't get your arms around it. It's too big, great, infinite, and wonderful. Well, 
One question is, how do we even see the sovereignty of God in the story of Christmas? Well, I won't have have you turn to these passages, but if we were to look again at Luke chapter 1, you would see God's sovereignty simply in the virgin birth. Uh, An angel comes to Mary and says, when she says, how in the world can I have a child? Uh, The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. The very fact that a virgin had a baby is is a testimony to the sovereign grace of God. That's not going to happen on its own, so to speak. Uh, You can also see it in the story uh, that we find in in Luke chapter 2. When you think about um, the census, and how God fulfilled prophecy through the senses. It's interesting, there's a verse in Proverbs that says that the heart of the king uh, is held in the hands of God and he turns it wherever he wishes. Well, God, at the right time in history, turned the heart of Caesar Augustus, the emperor, to call for a census. And the other players involved... Uh, were also used by God to to cause Mary and Joseph to need to go to Bethlehem for the census, which is where the Messiah was to be born. So it wasn't like Mary and Joseph got out their Bibles, looked in the Old Testament and said, hey, the Messiah is coming, so we better go to Bethlehem. They would not have been there if it weren't for the census. But God, in his sovereignty, made sure They were where they needed to be to fulfill the prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. We also see in this story about the shepherds. This is just a small thing, but to me it still uh, highlights the sovereignty of God. The angels appear to the shepherds and say, You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I think when they got there, they found the baby in a manger. I believe it was just like God said it was would be, that, that they found a baby lying in a feeding trough for animals, which would be the last place you would expect to find a baby. And that's why it says, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. God's sovereignty, even to the little details of, you will find the baby in a manger. And that's how you know that he is the Messiah. Or you go to Matthew and you see where um, it talks about in Matthew chapter 1. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Over and over again in the story of what happened at Christmas time, we find the fulfillment of scripture, which is God's sovereignty over history. He said it's going to happen. He makes sure it happens. We see in Matthew chapter 2 where the Magi come and you see this star lead them to the very house where Jesus is. God's sovereignty over every aspect of what was taking place. And so if you just think about uh, the Christmas story, it's filled with instances of God's sovereignty over all that was happening there. So there was God's sovereignty in the giving of the gift 
to fulfill scripture and to accomplish all that needed to be accomplished there, but also in the receiving of a gift, the gift as well. You know, one of the things that we probably don't think a lot about is what an amazing thing it is for us to say as Christians that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in a human body. If you think about that, those of us who've been raised in the church probably think, well, that's, I've heard that since I was five years old. But for someone who comes to Christ at maybe 33 or 43 or later on in life, that's an amazing thought. That's a new thought. And the reality is, you know, the song that many of us like that uh, Mark Lowry came up with, Mary, Did You Know, uh, kind of celebrates that unexpectedness of the incarnation. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water, that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters, that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? That your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? That your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. We oftentimes lose the wonder of the incarnation. That God actually came became a man, and walked among us just like we're walking among each other. And we could touch him, and we could talk to him, and we could see him do what he did. Truly an amazing thing. And it's part of the foolishness of the gospel. Paul talks about this. He doesn't talk about the incarnation per se, but he talks about the purpose of the incarnation. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1, when he talks about the word of the cross, the good news of Jesus coming and dying in our place, he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. So he says the Jews would have never believed that God could take on human flesh, nor could the Greeks, that it was totally out of their minds. And that's why you've got the Pharisees and the religious leaders rejecting Jesus because they thought it was blasphemy for a man to say that he was God. That's impossible. How could God become a man? And yet the Bible says at the end of this passage where Paul is talking about the foolishness of the message, both the incarnation as well as the crucifixion, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." 
The only reason why any of us believe such a foolish message like God became a man and then died on a cross in the place of sinners and then rose from the dead, the only reason we believe such a foolish thing is because God chose us and it's by his doing. The Bible says in Romans 3, There is none who seeks for God. There is none who does good. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody seeks the true God. Nobody believes and receives the gift of God's Son apart from sovereign grace. If you would turn to John chapter 1. And I'll just show you how John begins his gospel. And he highlights this very truth that Peter touches on in Acts chapter 2. We're familiar with how it begins when it says in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say in uh, verse 9, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to the Jewish people, they looked at him, and they said, this guy's either evil or crazy, and maybe a combination of the two. He certainly is not who he says he is. But, verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then it tells you why some believed in light of the fact that many did not. It says in verse 13, who were born, meaning born to newness of life, born to actually receive Jesus and believe in Jesus, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Which it's not because they were born into the right family or because they just chose to do it on their own. It was because of a gracious, sovereign work of God. Because no one will receive the gift that God offers in Jesus apart from his sovereign grace. When you think about it, the sovereignty of God is an amazing thing. The Bible talks about God's sovereignty over everything. God is sovereign over his own choices. Nobody manipulates excuse me, God. Nobody makes God do anything, it says in Psalm 115. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But it also talks about the fact that God is um, sovereign over every little thing in life. And you can see that so well. If you just read the short book of Jonah. It's a great book on the sovereignty of God. In Jonah chapter 1, it talks about the Lord hurling a great wind and calming the sea, which speaks of God's sovereignty over inanimate objects. Or in that same book, you see God appointing a plant to grow up and give shade to Jonah, which highlights God's sovereignty over the growth of plants. And so the reason why I can't grow anything is because I have a black thumb and because of God's sovereignty. So it's, it's both of those things. Uh, insects, it says God appointed a worm uh, to kill that plant that he had caused to grow. And so God's in charge of the insects. That's why there's mosquitoes in Louisiana, because God is sovereign over those mosquitoes. And Jonah, it also says that he's sovereign over animals or, or fish and things like that. When it says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow 
Jonah and then commanded that fish to spit him up on the um, on the beach. But God is also sovereign over people. And the most free person you could talk about in the biblical days was a king. The king, the king of a country, could do whatever he wanted to do within that country. No one could say, no, 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 you can't do that. Now, they may try to take him out, but they could not say no to him without him uh, doing something to them. And that's why it talks about the fact that God is sovereign even over the most free people. When it says in Proverbs 21.1, which is the verse I alluded to earlier, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And the Bible says God is sovereign over all circumstances, even when you're, um, you're playing a game and you're rolling dice. If it comes up snake eyes, it's because God is sovereign over that, that casting of the dice. The way it talks about it in the Bible is the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so God is sovereign in all kinds of ways, and it even says he's sovereign over sin. There's a verse in Genesis 20 where God tells this king, I kept you from sinning against me. And then there are other verses like what we find in Romans 1 where it says God gave them over to dishonor their bodies, to a depraved mind and things like that. But the thing that I'm focusing on here is not just the fact that he's sovereign over everything, he's also sovereign over salvation. In Jonah it also says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. If anyone is saved in any way, if you're saved from drowning in the ocean, God saved you. If you're saved from being killed on the freeway, God saved you. If you're saved spiritually and raised from the spiritually dead to receive the gift of God's Son, God did it, which means God gets the glory for that. In Ezekiel 36, it says, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. And so whatever we've experienced this year, The Bible tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Why? For this is God's will for you. This is God's will. So rejoice over the good things, thank him for the good things, and pray about the things that are hard because he's been sovereign over those hard things, and he's there to help you even in those circumstances. Well, let me wrap this up by applying it to 2021. Uh, In the Bible, God has not told us everything he could tell us. There are plenty of things that we wonder about, like how did a perfect angel fall and become Satan? There's plenty of things that we don't know in the Bible because God hasn't told us. But what he has told us is everything we need to know to trust him and to love in the ways he calls us to. 
He's given us all the information we need to trust him in every situation and to love in the ways he calls us to. The problem is we tend to twist the idea of God's sovereignty in ways he never intended. And we can know that if we read closely in what the, with regard to what the Bible says. Sometimes we take God's sovereignty to mean prayer is pointless or witnessing is unimportant or choices are insignificant or sinners are not responsible or God cannot love all men or God is the author of sin. There are all kinds of wrong, twisted ideas that we can come to when we fail to... Um, Look at all that the Bible says and realize that God is sovereign and yet he's also told us why he has given us that knowledge and why he hasn't, which means I've told you to pray, so obviously the fact that I've told you that I'm sovereign doesn't mean I don't want you to pray. I've told you to bear witness to other people who are lost, which obviously means I don't want you to think that because I'm sovereign you shouldn't tell people about the good news of Jesus. So we have to be careful of taking the truth of God's sovereignty to places that he never intended. But where did he want us to take that truth? It's meant to be a warning, first of all, to sinners. Because God says, I will judge every sin. And that means if he's sovereign, he will keep his promise. And therefore, I, as a sinner, need to make sure I've embraced his answer for my sin, which is, who is Jesus? The Bible says, the Lord keeps all those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Righteously and justly, it'll be a just punishment. But God's sovereignty says, you're not going to escape it if you run from God. But he offers you forgiveness in Jesus. Secondly, it's meant to humble the proud, to remind us that all that we have, we've received. It's not like we somehow have earned it or or got it in our own power, which is what Nebuchadnezzar thought, that he built Babylon um, and earned it somehow with his own glory and majesty. Paul says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything we have is from the hand of God. It's not because we're somebody great. It's because God has graciously given it to us. Then finally, God's sovereignty is meant to give hope to the fearful, um, to remind us that God will keep his promises and fulfill his purposes because he's in charge. There's no one that can keep him from fulfilling his promises or uh, keeping his Purposes. That's why Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And God could have added, Because I'm sovereign, no one can keep me from doing these things for you. You can trust me in 2021. Um, so what if I'm afraid going into 2021? I need to look hard at the sovereignty of God over everything. What if I look hard at the sovereignty of God and I'm still afraid? Then I need to look hard at the goodness and grace of God. There's a very interesting um, blog post that I read recently, and I'll close with this. 
It's by a guy named Tim Challies. Many of you may be familiar with him. He's a Christian pastor, associate pastor, I believe, who recently lost his son. His son was young, I forget exactly how old, didn't have any apparent uh, illness, just ended up dying suddenly and unexpectedly, not doing anything dangerous or anything, just died. And Tim Challies writes this about um, fearing God in the biblical way, with a respect and honor and reverence for God, and then wrestling with another kind of fear of God. So listen how he talks about it. He says, So I do fear God, but these days I'm also finding myself afraid of God. I fear him in that sense of rightly assessing his power, his abilities, his sovereignty. But I'm also afraid of the ways he may exercise them. It was, after all, just a month ago that God exercised his sovereignty in taking my son to himself. My life of ease and privilege was interrupted by a loss so great I would never have allowed myself to even imagine it. In one moment, God delivered a blow that staggered me, that very nearly crushed me. It was, of course, God's right to take Nick. I know that. I affirm that. The God with the ability to give is the God with the right to take. Willing as I was to receive Nick as a gift from God's hand, I cannot and will not begrudge the same God for taking him back. Like Job, I will bless the name of the Lord in the giving and in the taking. But it is God's ability and willingness to take that leaves me fearful. For if Nick's life was so very fragile that it could end in a moment without obvious cause or explanation, why not the lives of others who are precious to me? If God has called me to suffer this blow, why not another? If God took my beloved son with such speed, with such ease, with such finality, what else might he take? Who else might he take? And how could I bear such a loss? I am not particularly prone to anxiety, to fretting, to irrational fears. But in these days, I find myself living with a sense that something bad is about to happen, or that it could happen anyway. I don't want to let my girls out of my sight. I don't want Eileen to venture anywhere on her own. I don't want any of them to put themselves at even the least risk. I'm jumping, I'm scared, I'm looking over my shoulder. That's all silly, of course. Nick was the most cautious of our children and was taking no risks when his life came to an end. There was no connection between what he was doing and why or how God took him. But still I fear And when I'm honest with myself, I admit that it is God that I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of what else he might call me to do. I'm afraid of what other ways he might exercise his sovereignty. I'm afraid of what else he may will for me to endure. It's not that I begrudge or distrust him. At least I don't think so. I'm in awe of his ability and his willingness to work his will. But I'm also intimidated by it, afraid of what it might take from me. Perhaps the reality is that I fear God in a new way. Before I understood he had power, but now I know he has power. Before I knew God would exercise his power in giving what I love, but now I know God will also exercise his power in taking what I love. Before life was easy, because God's sovereignty always seemed inclined toward the things I wanted anyway. But now life is hard, because I see that God's sovereignty may also be inclined towards the things I dread the things I would not wish for. I've chosen to submit myself to that sovereignty, to continue to pray, thy will be done. But even as I pray, I cringe just a little. 
I pray the words with little faith and with some hesitation. Even as I say the words, at least for now, I feel some measure of dread, for I know that he will work his will, his good will, no matter what it takes, excuse me, no matter what it gives to me or takes from me. It's the taking I fear, and behind the taking, the taker. So why do we who believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God wrestle with fear? It's because of things like this. Because we know that the God who's in charge gives and takes. Like Job said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we can be afraid if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God. We can be afraid if we believe in the sovereignty of God. And so what do we have to fight with? What do we have to do? Well, it reminded me again of um, the discussion between the beaver and Susan talking about Aslan, which you may recall. The beaver said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is God safe in the sense that we can control him? No. That we can dictate what he does? No. He's wild in that sense. He's a wild lion in that sense. We, we don't dictate to God. He does whatever he pleases. And so what keeps us from being afraid of a sovereign God? We have to believe that he's good. He's truly good. If you read the book of Habakkuk, which would be a good read after a sermon like this, uh, Habakkuk is talking about how he's afraid of what God's about to do. God's going to send an army to destroy um, Judah. And Habakkuk, the prophet of God, is afraid of what's going to happen. But at the end of the book, he works through his fear, and he focuses on the God who's sovereign over what's about to happen. And he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk could say, I'm really afraid of what's about to happen. You might say that too, in terms of 2021 in various ways. But we have to fight with the truth that whatever our sovereign God does, he does it for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. He does it that people might be saved. He does it that his people who already believe might grow in their trust and in their love. And the point that Habakkuk makes is, you know what, there may not be any figs on the fig tree and no grapes on the vine. Things may be really bare and hard and difficult and something I would never want. But one thing will be the same. My God will be the same. And he is the one who makes my feet like hind's feet. A hind is a female deer. And what kind of feet do they have? They have feet that can navigate uh, rocky crags 
and difficult terrain and not fall and die. They can navigate the obstacles and the rocky terrain. God, who sends the obstacles and the rocky terrain, gives you feet to walk over those rocky, hard, difficult places. And he does that by walking with you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you, so count it all joy, because I intend it for joy. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, thank you for your goodness to us this last year. And yet, some of us may wrestle with some fear with regard to what 2021 might bring. And we might do that even in the face of our belief in your sovereignty. I pray, Father, that you would meet the deepest needs of our heart for you, that you'd grant us the faith we need. If we don't believe in you and your sovereignty, grant us grace to believe in you and your sovereignty. If we're not trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, grant us grace to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If we're not resting in your sovereign goodness and the grace you give for every difficult situation, then please grant us grace to trust you in that way this year. Father, the days are uncertain and they're likely to be very difficult in various ways. Yet you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're good, you're sovereign, your grace is sufficient. Help us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.